You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Thanks, Chris. Thank you guys so much. We really do feel like uh, we're among family here because, uh, well, the connections we have with Chris and with Ted, but also my wife, she really grew as a new Christian at Harvest Oakville, and, and so through that connection, we know a number of you here. So thank you for welcoming us this morning. Thank you for having us. I know what you're thinking. This guy's English is very good. He, he must have studied a long time to speak like that. Um, no, English is my first language. Uh, our church in Montreal is in French, and so everything we do is in French, which means this is kind of like having an enormous weight lifted off me. I feel like I'm, I've broken free of a straitjacket to now be able to speak in English and teach in English uh, and being able to do it in my first language. It's incredibly freeing, but uh, also dangerous. I want to make sure I don't just talk and talk now that I have that restriction lifted. So thank you for allowing me to come here and preach in my first language. I'm uh, delighted to be here. I'm going to read for you a text um, that we're going to talk about from Philippians 4. So if you have a Bible with you, you can flip to that book. Uh, If not, you can listen and I will uh, read it for us. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 13. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Something that we believe very, very deeply about the Bible, something the Bible actually says about itself, is that everything in it is applicable to our lives. Everything in it is is useful, is profitable, is helpful. And sometimes you read a text And you think about it, and it's a little bit harder sometimes to see that connection. Other times, you read a text like this, and it is a lot more obvious. This is a text about anxiety. And I have, I would really doubt that there'd be anybody in this room right now that never struggles with anxiety, that never has moments or days or seasons of great and crushing anxiety. It's almost as if that's become more and more of a problem in our society. As we get more wealthy and as we get more independent and strong, it seems like that is an increasing problem. And so in light of that problem, what does the Bible have to say to this issue? To this ubiquitous problem that we all face, what does the Bible have to say to this? Well, that's what we read in this text. And as we look at it in a bit more detail together, we're going to see three things 
that the Bible says about the solution to our anxiety. The Bible says the solution to our anxiety is this wonderful thing called peace. And in these verses, Paul, the one who wrote this letter, unpacks this idea of peace. And he says three things about it. He says that it's possible to have this peace. It's a peace which overcomes our fears. Secondly, I want us to see that it is a peace that prevents comparison. And then thirdly, we're going to see that this is a peace that sustains us in loss. So it's a peace that overcomes our fears. It's a peace that prevents comparison. And thirdly, it's a peace that sustains us in loss. Firstly, this beautiful peace overcomes our fears. I don't know you all personally, but if you're anything like me and the people that I know in my city, a lot of us have a lot of fears about the future. A lot of us have a lot of fears about the decisions that we need to make. We're afraid we're not going to find a good job. Or we're afraid that we're going to choose the wrong school. Or not get into the right school. We're afraid that if we don't do well enough at work, we're not going to get the promotion that we want. In fact, I'm willing to say that I think some of you are probably so afraid about making the wrong decision, you're actually incredibly indecisive. And you don't make any decision for fear of making the wrong one. We have incredible anxiety about the future and about these decisions. But what does God say about that in this text? Well, in verse 6, he says very clearly through Paul, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God says you can have peace. It's possible. How? Through prayer. Through prayer. Some of you might be very familiar with the idea of prayer. Some of you may be less familiar. But prayer is, at root, an admission that we're not in control. It's a declaration that we are not ultimately in control of our lives. Prayer is saying, I need help. I am in need and I need help. In fact, I think that's why so many of us are so bad at prayer, because we don't like saying that. We don't like admitting that we need help and that we don't have everything all together. We don't like admitting that we're not in control. We like to think we are, but let's be honest, we're not actually in control. There's a wonderful poem that many of you are probably familiar with written by William Henley. It's called Invictus. Invictus, Invictus, the Latin word for unconquered. It's actually the poem that Nelson Mandela had uh, that inspired him while he was in prison. I want to read for you the last stanza of this poem. It goes, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We love that quote. It speaks to us. I hear that and I feel like I'm in the Lord of the Rings. You know, I, I want to fight a dragon. I want to do something crazy. It, feel, you know, it empowers me. I really like it. Unfortunately, reality is quite different from that. Are we the master of our fate for even two seconds? Were you the masters of your fate this very morning? No, somebody cut you off and made you late or maybe you were the one who cut somebody off and made somebody else late. We, we are not masters of our own fate. Life shows us every moment that that's actually not the case. We are not in control of our lives. So prayer is admitting that that is the case, that we're not in control. 
But prayer is also acknowledging that we should not be in control. It's actually saying, you know what? It's a great thing that I'm not the master of my own fate. It's a great thing that I'm not in control. Because if everything did depend on you, if everything did depend on me in my life, that would be horrible. It'd be terrifying. Think about the pressure if every one of your decisions was ultimately determinant for the future of your life. To think if you had the power to really ruin your life, would you even want to get out of bed in the morning? To think that your bad decision on a given day could mess up everything. That would be crushing. You know, it's one thing to fail at something, but it's another entirely to fail knowing that it's all your fault. That all that pressure was on you and you messed up. That is one of the most difficult things to live with. If it is all on you and you fail, you are a failure. But if it's all on you, you know what's even worse than failure? Success. Because if you are the master of your fate and you succeed, you will become an unbearable person. You will become extremely unpleasant. You'll become extremely arrogant. If it all depends on you and you succeed, well then, hey, it's all because of me. I guess I must be that smart or I'm that gifted. And it hardens you and you become incredibly arrogant. So it's actually good news. It's actually wonderful news that we are not ultimately in control. Prayer is declaring that that's the case. But prayer is also declaring that there is someone who's in control. It's not us. It's actually God. Prayer is a declaration that God is in control of everything. You see, Christian prayer isn't just a way to feel good or to focus our thoughts or to channel positive energies. Prayer is actually speaking with the Lord of the universe and asking him to intervene on our behalf. It's acknowledging that he is in control of everything and that he can do everything. The heart, the heart of Christian prayer is saying, I can't, but God, you can. That is the basis of every Christian prayer. If you want to see to what extent this God is in control, uh, there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs. And in chapter 16, there's a number of verses that underline just to what degree this God is in control. I'll read you a couple real quick. At one point it says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Later on it says, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You see, this control that God has is not some sort of assembly line, mechanical, impersonal control. No, it's a wise, loving, sovereign God who orchestrates things and controls things for the good of his people. That's why it says to pray with thanksgiving. Did you notice that in verse six? It says, in everything, pray to God, but with thanksgiving, which is actually kind of odd if you think about it, right? How can you be thankful for something you don't have? God, I'm really, I really want this. How are you thankful? You don't even have it yet. Well, this is why. Be thankful knowing that he is wise, that he is loving, that he is in control, that he knows what is best and can do what is best. It's being thankful that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers. 
A lot of us have experienced that before, right? The feeling or the experience of not having a prayer answered. But what this reminds us is that sometimes the very worst thing God could ever do for us is answer a prayer, right? Just off the top of my mind, I can think of five prayers that if God would have answered them, I would have ruined my life. Would have ruined, would have taken me in the complete wrong direction. I mean, I look back now and I say, thank you for not answering that prayer. I was crushed when it didn't happen, but now I look back and I see that that was actually the best thing for me. I have a friend who has this great quote that I love very much about prayer, and he says that as we pray to God, this is essentially what God says to us. God says, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything I know. It's like saying, if we had the infinite wisdom of God, if we knew what he knew, our prayers would be very different. You know, we're praying desperately to be in a relationship with this person, to date this person. But if we had the wisdom of God, we'd look and we'd say, oh my gosh, that would be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Or we're praying to get into this school or to get this job, but then with the wisdom of God, we could see, wow, that would be horrible for me. That would not be the best thing for me. And so we can pray with thankfulness, knowing that even when the answer is no, it is the best thing for us. Prayer is declaring that God is in control and that he knows what we need way better than we do. This is how you get peace in your life, through prayer, by saying, I can't, God, but you can. You are able to do that. It's someone like, it's somewhat like if you take a flight, some of you, many of you probably had the experience of taking a, a flight. Imagine being in the air and you experience the worst turbulence you've ever had in your entire life. The whole plane is shaking. You feel like your seatbelt's gonna come undone. Uh, the plane itself seems to be vibrating. Uh, people are getting scared. You are having the worst flight of your life and you start getting anxious. You start getting scared even if you're an experienced flyer. You're like, is this, are these the last moments of my life? Some of you are probably sweating right now even just thinking about this possibility. Now imagine the same situation, but just before takeoff, one of the flight attendants comes to see you and says, I just want to let you know, your pilot today is the best pilot in the world. The best. Been flying planes since he was like 12. He's got millions of kilometers of experience. He saved hundreds of thousands of lives. He is the best pilot in the world. Well, what would that change? It would change everything. You could experience the same horrible flight, the vibrations and the shaking, the turbulence. Your plane could be upside down at one point and you'd be like, that's all right, I'm okay. I'm in great hands. I got the best pilot in the world. I got nothing to worry about. If your life looks more like the first situation of great turmoil and anxiety and fear, it is because you have forgotten or because you have never known that wise, loving control of a father who wants the best for your life. Because in the Bible, God says to us the same thing that that flight attendant says in that imaginary situation. You are in the best hands possible. You have a wise, loving, expert pilot in control of your life who knows what he's doing and is not gonna crash the plane and is not gonna have harm come to you. Earlier on, I mentioned something that I want to come back to. I mentioned that some of you might be experiencing fear about making a wrong decision, 
about taking your life in the wrong direction. Is that possible then? If God's in perfect control, can we make a mistake? Well, it's certainly true that we're not robots. It's certainly true that we make decisions with consequences and with effects, so we're certainly not robots. But listen to me very carefully. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have committed your life to following him and loving him, there is no plan B for your life. There is no plan B for your life. It's not like everyone starts with plan A and then every mistake we make brings us down to a lower grade of plan for our life. I'm convinced that a lot of us tend to think that. We're on the plan A, but then, oops, I'm down to plan B. And then, oh, that was not a good, okay, now I'm down to plan C. I made a mistake, oh, I sinned here, now plan D. My friends, if this was what life was like, we would all be on on plan Z. We would be on negative, I don't know, Z. We would be below that. That's a terrifying thought. But the Bible says that is not the case for people who follow Jesus. I mean, do you really think you have that much power? Do you really think you could make a decision and God's gonna be up there thinking, whoops, (laughs) I didn't see that coming. Well, he's in trouble now. That's beyond my reach. It's borderline arrogant to think that we have the power to ruin our own lives. My friends, if you follow Jesus, there is no plan B for your life. There is only a plan A. Sure, there are decisions we could make, you know, to, to, to take the illustration of the airplane again. You can make decisions that will make that plane shake a lot more than it should. You will make your flight a lot more unpleasant. But my friends, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can't crash your plane. You don't have that kind of power. There is only a plan A for you in your life. And then somehow in his wisdom and his power, he has a way of incorporating even our worst mistakes into his plan and leading us in the direction he wants us to go. So yes, with all our power, we want to obey God, we want to follow him, we want to listen to his voice. But we can't crash the plane. We don't have that kind of power. You're not the pilot. God's the pilot. He has a plan A for your life. So that's the first thing about this great peace is that it overcomes our fears. But the second great thing about it is this is a peace that prevents comparison. You may have noticed something interesting later on in the text that we read. In verses 11 to 13, the writer Paul, he describes his circumstances and he explains that at various moments in his life, he had very little, very, very little financial means and resources. He says, in light of that, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content, I know how to be brought low. I think we read that and we say, that's fantastic. That's a great thing to learn, to not have very much means and yet to still be content. That's terrific. Thanks, Paul. But then we keep reading and it gets a bit more surprising because he goes on to say, I also know how to abound. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Wait, what? I've learned the secret of facing abundance, (laughs) of facing plenty? As though abundance and plenty and prosperity are like these great horrible things that we have to summon the courage and the power to deal with? That is very, very interesting. We would expect it would be a challenge to face poverty, but he's saying it's a challenge to face prosperity. Why is that? Well, I think 
in our culture, we experience this more than anybody else. Paul is talking about the anxiety and the danger of comparison. Paul is saying you can be as anxious in prosperity as you can be in poverty. Because no matter how prosperous you are, there's always somebody more prosperous than you. I don't know what your place of anxiety is. I can tell you my place of anxiety. My place of anxiety is at the checkout line in the grocery store. Because in every grocery store on the face of the earth, right before you check out, there's that magazine rack. And you walk by that magazine rack, and I'm reminded of everything I don't have, of everything I am not, and everything I should be. I start doing my groceries, and I'm content, I'm a happy man, things are great, I get to that magazine rack, I really stink. I, I don't have what I should have, my house is terrible, uh, I'm not in shape, my kids are disobedient. Nothing for me introduces anxiety like seeing that poster, those covers of magazines that show me that. I don't know what your place of anxiety is. I'm sure for a lot of you it's Facebook. You're feeling very content, you log into Facebook and Facebook and then you just start feeling terrible. Maybe it's something else, but we all have a place where it produces great anxiety because of comparison. And it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous because comparison and the anxiety it brings can literally take your dream trip to Spain and make it seem like nothing because your neighbors went to Indonesia. And you look on Facebook and you're like, dang it. Spain, Spain stinks. Spain's terrible. I thought Barcelona was great, but no, it's not. Indonesia is really what I want. And we, we laugh because we know that it's true. We've all experienced this. And so people will say to us, right? They'll say, well, just listen, you need to be thankful for what you have. Just be thankful for what you have. You know, there's children in Africa that don't have enough to eat. You need to be thankful for what you have. Listen, I'm going to be extremely honest. I know that that is true, that there are people in this world that don't have enough to eat. And that is a sad fact. But the reality for me is I don't see those people every day. But I see my neighbor every day. And he shares his pictures with me every day. And invites me over to talk about his trip every day. That is my reality. That's why that comparison is a hundred times worse. Is this a first world problem? Yes. Is it a problem? Yeah. And it produces crippling anxiety for a lot of us. So what is the solution then? Well, the solution is not just be thankful. The solution is not accumulate more than your neighbor so that you can go even further than Indonesia and show him your pictures and beat him. Our culture would have us believe that, but that's not the case. The solution, Paul says here, is we have to learn contentment. Kind of an interesting word choice, no? He says, I have learned to be content in every situation. He's saying, this is not a naturally occurring phenomenon in our heart. This idea of contentment, this doesn't grow in our hearts naturally. It's something we have to learn. You don't just wake up one day and be content. You have to learn it. And if you think of some of the things you've had to learn in your life, be it, be it a music, maybe you know an instrument, maybe you're proficient, you have a great talent in something, whatever it is in your life, you have had to learn that skill. You did not wake up being a virtuoso with the violin. You had to learn that. Paul is saying contentment is the exact same thing. We have to learn it. And how do we learn it? 
He says, by thinking and by meditating on what is true. He says in verses eight to nine, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is very, very interesting because in a lot of other religions, a lot of Eastern religions, for example, the way to get peace is by doing what? It's actually by emptying your mind. You empty your mind of thoughts, of desires, and that is the solution to anxiety. But Paul says here the exact opposite. He says, no, the solution to anxiety, the way to get peace for contentment is to fill your mind, to fill your mind with truth, to think about these things. That is the solution to get peace against your comparison. See, people who have studied Paul very extensively, they say that all of those words that I read there, the Greek words for just and noble and honorable, all of those words are referring the Bible. They're all referring to the word of God. And so Paul is saying, if you want to learn to be content in any situation, to have that peace, we have to set our thoughts on the word of God, on what he says in the Bible. For some of you, this might not be an extremely novel idea, but let me just tell you something. The point of the Bible is not something that we read in the mornings to tick off a checkbox and then complete our day. Paul is saying it's something that has to be internalized. It needs to go deep down into our heart. It is not a merely intellectual endeavor where we read and learn and take a note and, and walk away and hope that things change. It needs to go down into the very foundation of our soul and of our hearts. If you've read the Bible, you know there's a lot of different images used for it. And one of the most important to communicate this idea of the affective and emotional and foundational parts of the word is by comparing it to food. Have you noticed that before? That often the writers of the Bible will compare the Bible to food. So for example, in Psalm 119, the writer says, how sweet are your words to my taste, Lord. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. You see, this isn't just an intellectual pursuit. My wife and I are, are big foodies. We love to eat. It's one of our favorite things. And I will tell you something. When we have a good meal, I take that with me for weeks. No, not in a doggy bag. I take it with me in my mind. I, I can still savor it. We went out for our anniversary a few days ago. That's going to take me for a few months. It was a great meal. It was so sweet to my taste. It stays with me. I can still savor it. And many of the writers of the Bible are saying, this is what the word of God is to be like to us. Yes, there's things to learn, but it's also something to taste and enjoy and to take with us as we go. So how do you do that? I'll give you a very, very simple suggestion from my own life. I do read the Bible in the morning and I do learn many things from it, but then what I do is I make a point of going on my phone and I'll take a, a screenshot of the verse that affected me the most from what I read and I carry it with me everywhere I go that day, right? Every time I open my phone, my screenshot cover is a picture of that verse. This is very different from what Paul would have done. I assume with scrolls that would be a different challenge, but for me, that works out great. It is a way to take what I've read the morning and to taste it and enjoy it and feast on it for the rest of the day. Do you have a way to do that? 
Do you have a way to fix your thoughts and the taste buds of your heart on God's word throughout the day? Paul says that's the solution to this anxiety of comparison, is to have your heart become so satisfied in that that it doesn't matter what the other person has. Paul says if we do this, not just will we experience peace. He says in verse nine, the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just like God will zap you with the peace ray and oh, that's great, I got peace. Even better, more personal. The God of peace is with you. Everything about him that is peaceful and calming and satisfying goes with us. It is the most wonderful thing. This is a peace that can overcome our fears. It is a peace that can prevent that danger of comparison. But lastly, and most gloriously, this is a peace that sustains us in loss. You see, our anxiety over losing things is probably the most hidden of these kinds of anxieties, but I will put to you that it is by far the most dangerous because it's actually the one that hurts other people. It's actually the one that doesn't just destroy us, but actually destroys other people. You see, our anxiety over losing things, the things that are most precious to us, leads us to make really bad decisions that hurt other people. I'll give you an example. If you experience great anxiety over losing your children, if you are afraid of losing your kids, you will have the instinct to overprotect them. You will overparent them, overplan your day for them, and you will overprotect them and stunt their natural development. Or maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse. If your greatest anxiety is potentially losing that person, what are you gonna do? You are gonna so try to keep them and prevent them from leaving, you will suffocate them and potentially even expedite them leaving. This is an anxiety. This fear of losing actually causes us to make terrible decisions and hurt the people around us. Psychologists and doctors, they propose all sorts of solutions and trying to get at the root of this and trying to help us deal with this problem. And they do, they have many solutions. But the Bible proposes something very unique. The Bible says that this particular anxiety, this fear over losing things, it comes from loving things in the wrong order. The Bible says that this anxiety over losing things comes once we mix up the order of loves in our heart. What do I mean? Well, we all have things we love. Pizza and our spouse. I hope we don't love them with the same intensity, right? We have different orders of love in our lives. Certain things we love more, certain things become less. Different levels. But the question that the Bible will pose to you is what do you love most in your life? What is most important to you? What is the one thing that you just can't live without? It could be a person. It could be your career. It could be your reputation. Maybe it's a possession that you have. Maybe it's your beauty. Maybe it's the amount in your bank account. But listen to me very closely. If losing this thing would crush you, if this thing in your life is the most important thing, then if it's gone, you're gone. If you lose it and you have nothing, 
You may call yourself a Christian, but that thing is actually your God. That is the thing that controls you. And if that thing controls you, one day you will find yourself doing the unthinkable in order to keep it. Maybe you were somebody that was raised, I'll give you a great example. Maybe you were somebody that was raised in a, in a, in a Christian home and you were taught that lying is very wrong and that you should never lie and that, and that only liars lie and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you were taught those things and maybe on the whole you don't lie. But if the thing you love the most in your life is your image, I can guarantee you that if that image is threatened, you will lie faced with the prospect of the anxiety of losing your reputation, you will absolutely lie to cover that up and to make sure you keep it. You will absolutely do anything to get it. And you will surprise yourself by doing the unthinkable in order to keep those things. You may have heard of Augustine, a fourth century theologian, philosopher. He wrote a lot about this. And one thing he said is this problem, this anxiety, can be traced back to what he calls disordered love. He says we're putting the wrong things at the top. He says the problem is not loving our kids or loving our career or even loving our reputation or our job. He says the problem is that we love them way too much. We love them way too much. Augustine says whatever you put in that top spot of love is your God. And so he would say, no matter what you believe, or no matter what you say you believe, the most, in question, the most important question is actually, what do you love? You may say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is my savior. I believe that he died for me on the cross. But what do you love? Because if the thing you love the most in the world is something else, that is the thing that is your God. In his book, The City of God, he has a great quote. He says, we have reversed the order. We love, instead of God, the things that come from God. And he says, this is what produces this anxiety and this fear of loss. Comes from loving things too much. It might be a very good thing, like our kids or our family or a job. But if you make it the thing you love the most, it will destroy you. And it will produce incredible amounts of anxiety as you fret losing it. So what is the solution to this one? It's obviously going to be peace. But how do we get this peace that staves off the anxiety of losing things? Paul says it in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That might strike you as somewhat odd. I mean, how can someone command you to feel a certain way? How can someone tell you to rejoice if you don't feel like rejoicing? Well, because he's not talking about a feeling. This verse isn't saying, be happy. Again, I say, be happy. No, he's talking about much more than that. Rejoice signifies much more than just be happy. It signifies fixing the thoughts of one's heart on the most valuable thing in his life. I'll read you a quote from a book written by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York. And he writes about this idea of rejoicing, and he says, To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. 
Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. This is how we set the order of love in our heart. This is how we reprioritize the things. Augustine's famous prayer was set love in order within me. And Paul says, this is how you do it. You rejoice. You set your mind and your heart to treasure the thing that is of utmost importance, God himself. And you make your heart do that until it relaxes its grip on other things. Why should our hearts worship God? Why do we treasure him so much? For the simple reason that this great peace that we're talking about this morning, this great peace that is offered to us, is only available because it came at infinite cost to God. This peace that he offers us is not something that comes freely or cheaply. It comes at infinite cost to God. You see, Jesus in the Bible is referred to as the Prince of Peace. He was the man who lived and experienced the greatest, most profound, most consistent and constant peace of anyone who's ever lived. And yet something happened at the end of his life, if you know the story. Something happened in the garden that Chris mentioned earlier. He lost that peace. At the end of his life in Luke 22, it says, being in great anxiety and anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, who was the Prince of Peace, experienced the worst anxiety and anguish. Why? So that we could get that peace. We don't deserve peace. We have not lived lives in the right way to deserve this great gift from God. And yet Jesus bore and experienced the anguish and the anxiety that we deserve in order that we might have a peace that we don't deserve. The reason why drops of blood were sweating from his brow, the reason he experienced that anxiety is so that we could know his peace. Can you imagine having perfect peace your entire life and then losing it? That was the suffering that Jesus experienced so that we could know the most incredible peace. This is the thing that we are to treasure and this is the thing that we are to reflect on. This is the beauty that as we envision it in our heart's eye, this is the thing that causes us to lose and to loosen our grip on the other things that our heart loves. This frees us from anxiety. Because my friends, if this is the thing that you treasure most in the world, if the fact that God loves you and chose you and saves you is the most important thing in your life, well guess what, you can't lose that. And it means you become invincible to the fear of losing other things. Imagine for a second that you have in your family, imagine you have some great family heirlooms. Imagine you have a, I don't know if it's a piece of art or some jewelry or something that's been in your family, let's say for generations. Most important thing in the world. And, and you receive it as an inheritance. This thing is precious to you and to your family. Well, what do you do if you're a wise person, well, you go and lock it up somewhere safe, right? You find a safety deposit box or something in a bank and you lock it up and it becomes safe. Now imagine one day you come home from work and you arrive home and you see that your house is on fire. What would you experience in that moment? You'd experience frustration, I'm sure, and sadness and loss. That would, that would be a devastating thing for sure to see your house burn down. But you know what? In the back of your mind, what would you say? You'd say, well, at least the most important thing is safe. 
at least that family heirloom and that, and that jewel or that painting, whatever it is, at least it's locked away and it's safe. I may have lost my house, but I know that the thing that's most important is not there. That is what this treasuring does. It means that our life and our heart is hidden with Christ and God and we become immune to this fear of losing things because no matter what goes away, the most important thing remains. This, my friends, is what can make you an incredibly strong person. This is what makes you immune to that kind of loss. It makes you invincible because there's nothing that someone can take away from you that can destroy you because the most important thing, your life, your relationship with God is hidden and protected forever. This is how we experience that peace. Paul says it's an experience of peace that, that surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense because it comes from God and not from our own efforts. We can have this peace, you can have this peace because the Prince of Peace experienced the anguish we deserve so that we can walk free from anxiety and in his perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that despite the fact that this world seems to conspire against us so often to bring stresses and frustrations and anxieties and fears into our life, we thank you that you are still the Prince of Peace. And because you experienced that incredible anguish in the garden and on the cross for our sins, we can have a peace that frees us from loss, that frees us from comparison, overcomes all of our fears. I pray for everyone gathered here that you would help us to fix our eyes on you and on your beauty until our heart is freed from its grip on things that don't satisfy, from the grip that it places on things that just don't satisfy us from our false gods. Would you do that now, Lord, as we gather, as we leave from here? I pray you would keep these things in our mind and that you would make that act of freedom a reality in our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.